to Luke chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. In your pew Bibles, that'll be page 860. Ryan Wojciechowski is going to come. It's family service weekend. You might not realize that, but it is. And so one of the best families here is the Wojciechowski family. And so Ryan's going to come, and he's going to read for us this evening. Give it up for Ryan. passage reads, And he arose and left the synagogue and and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appeared to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You can give it to hell. There you go. All right. Well, we should give him a round of applause. My goodness, he nailed it. I tell you, you know, if you are asked to preach or to preach, to read the scripture, you will realize, most of you, that it's actually nerve inspiring. It is awesome to get up here, but it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it leads a lot of people to feeling a little anxious. But you know what? We read the scriptures, and we, uh, we usually and often have you stand when we do, and I'll tell you why we do that, and it's going to actually be a bit of an approach that we're going to take tonight and today during this uh, message. But the Word of God is, we believe, the highest authority over our lives. Now, do you agree with that? Boy, I'm preaching and speaking to a liberal crowd tonight. Do you agree with that, the Word of God? Yeah. Yeah. So we want to, I hope you agree with that because that's really what we believe. So every time you come to this church, you're going to hear us preaching and teaching straight from the scriptures expositorily, almost always, not topically, and not usually narratively, but we want to explain the text and then try to help us apply it and uh, to be able to live the Word of God as well. So what we're going to do today... In our Summer in the Sun series, remember we're going through the Gospel of Luke. It's really, you could call it the Gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus according to Luke. And Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospel writers, they really are tour guides. That's what they really are. They're not really teaching us the, like the epistles of Paul. They're, they're more, they, they've... They've assembled their material. They've taken all the stories of Jesus and they put them, each of them, put them together uniquely. They're all unique from one another, yet there's a ton of overlap on them. But they all want to be tour guides because really what they want to do is show us Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to let Luke be our tour guide in this Summer in the Sun series. And we're going to see Jesus week after week this summer. Well, we do that during the year a lot as well. But we're going to do that this summer. 
And unlike the Old Testament and other places in the New Testament where, you know, you got to kind of search for Jesus, you've got to discern by the Spirit, where is Jesus? How is this leading to Jesus? Here, Jesus is right in front of us. And guess where Luke, the tour guide, is going to lead us? Well, to Jesus. And then ultimately, we're going to be led to the Lord's Supper. So I hope you're ready. If you're watching this online, we are about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So you want to get the the elements of the bread and the juice and the wine together uh, so that we can celebrate that together. We'll be doing that in about 20 minutes. So I want to encourage you to get ready for that. Well, here's what we've seen from our tour guide, Luke. Jesus was in Nazareth. That was the town he grew up in. And he proclaimed in that town that he was the anointed one. That means he's the Messiah. He was sent by God to open the eyes of the blind, to come for the poor, to set captives free and deliver the oppressed. That's why Jesus came. And we saw a few weeks ago that really, yes, he did open the eyes of the physically blind, but he's really opening the eyes of the spiritually blind. And yes, he came to bless those who were financially poor, but he really is coming to the spiritually poor. And yes, he is setting captives free, but those captives are those in prison to sin, and the ones that he is delivering are those oppressed by the devil. And the people in Nazareth, when he preached that, when he claimed to be the anointed one, they hated him. They tried to kill him. They drove him to the edge of a cliff. They were going to throw him off, and they were going to stone him to death. He leaves Nazareth. The Bible never records he went back there again. He leaves Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum. And Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. It's a freshwater lake. It's all the way north and a little bit west. It's one of the 16 fishing ports on that freshwater lake. It's actually the biggest one. And this is where his ministry headquarters are going to be. He's going to spend a lot of time in his ministry at Capernaum. He's in the region of Galilee. It's a 50 mile north to south, 25 mile east to west region in northern Israel. He's going to be here for 18 months and he's going to do a whole lot of things. Well, he goes to Nazareth or goes to Capernaum rather. He goes into the synagogue, that's Jewish church. He preaches and then there is in that congregation a man who was demon-possessed who blew his own cover because a demon cannot stay still under the mighty power of Jesus Christ. He blew his own cover and Jesus dispossessed that man of that demon, cast the demon out of him. And the man was freed. Well, what we're gonna see today from our tour guide, Luke, is it's noon. That's customarily when synagogue service is finished. They would conclude and everybody would go to the largest meal of the day. That was the midday deal uh, meal. They would go to their own homes. They're going to lunch. And Jesus was invited by Peter to go have lunch with him. Now with Peter is Andrew, his brother, and his fishing partners, John and James. And they all travel, they, they believe they know where Peter's home was and where the synagogue was. It's a very short distance from one to the other. They go over to Peter's home 
and it's a home that is part of a block apartment that shares a courtyard. That's what archaeologists tell us. It has a very unique um, style to it. So there's a lot of homes around a courtyard. Really very common, very modern. That's how a lot of uh, sub-developments are built today. So they go over to Peter's home. Look at what Luke 4, 38 says. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, you might be interested to know this. We'll probably cover this later. Um, you know, do you realize yet that Jesus had not yet called Peter and Andrew and James and John to full-time ministry? They're just checking him out. He invited them to come travel with him a little bit, but you're going to see in Luke chapter 5, the very next chapter, now he comes back to them and says, listen, I'm asking you to lay down your nets. Get rid of that fishing career. All four of them were fishing, fishermen. They were partners. And I'm asking you to follow me. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. I'm going to teach you how to get on mission, my mission. And they leave their nets and they follow him the rest of their lives. Well, they go in and they walk into Peter's home and there they discover that Peter's mother-in-law, there's a reason she didn't make it to church that day. She was home sick. Look at the text. She was ill. That's a medical word, by the way, in the Greek. It means that she was caught in the grip of something. She was caught in the grip of something. What she was caught in the grip of was, the text says, a high fever. Now, in the Greek, the word high is the word megas. So she's in a mega high, she has a mega high fever, meaning great or big. This is a serious fever. This is a life-threatening fever. In fact, Greek doctors categorized fevers as major or minor. This was a major fever. And they had no Advil then, they had no Tylenol to bring it down. She is at risk. They come to Jesus and they tell him, my mother-in-law is sick. What's he do? Well, you know, he's the God of love. He walks over to her bed. She couldn't even get out of bed. She was so sick. Stands at her side. Mark's gospel, Mark the tour guide, says that he took her hand. Luke says that he rebuked the fever, verse 39, and it left her. Rebuked is a very strong word. By the way, he rebuked the demon just moments before, minutes before in the synagogue. The demon left. Now he rebukes the fever. And what Luke is not saying is that the fever was coming from a demon. That's not the point. Is that he has the authority over demons and disease. This is what he's proving. Our tour guide is showing us Jesus, the authoritative son of God. The fever left. And not only her fever, and you know this, right? If you have had a fever, you know there's a fatigue, there's an ache, there is a, hours and maybe even a day or two or more before you really get your strength back. Well, look what happens. Not only the fever left her, but the fatigue and the ache left her. For immediately, verse 39, she rose and began to serve them. All right, now, you're doing what I often do when I sit under preaching too, and I'm going to try to train you not to do it. You're looking at me. Am I really that good looking? I don't think so. 
You should be looking at your Bible, so get your Bibles open. Let's get in the Bibles. Listen, I can make mistakes. You've got to check me. So get into the Word of God and make sure what I'm saying is right. He rebukes her fever. Immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, some cynic is going to say, what a misogynist. He just made her better so she can make make him lunch. That's not what it is. It's he loves her. And this is worship. By the way, the word worship most fundamentally means to serve. When we worship God, we are serving him. We are serving him praise. We are serving him exaltation. We are serving him as the proclamation that he is the greatest person and the greatest being in our lives. So worship is service. This is what she does. She serves. He heals her and he's just getting started. Now here's the interesting part, it gets really going. Later that day, I don't think they watched a football game that afternoon, but it's several hours later, probably six to seven o'clock, when the sun was setting, look what our tour guide says, it's evening, and all of a sudden, the first knock comes to Peter's door. Now, you see, what happened is the scribes, those are Jewish lawyers, those are experts in the law of God, they're the ones that copy the law of God, they made a very unfortunate and a very narrow interpretation of Jeremiah 17, 24, which goes like this, but if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day. He's promising to bless them if they don't bring merchandise, if they don't bring merchants and cargo and try to make money on the Sabbath day. That's what he's saying. But the scribes narrowed that until it became illegal to even carry a sick person or a mat for a sick person. That's kind of like a thin mattress. You couldn't even carry that on the Sabbath. Now, you remember, their Sabbath was on a Saturday. In fact, they made it so narrow that if you're a parent and your little boy is playing and he trips and his knee is bloody and he's crying and his hands are, are being held up to you to pick him up to hold them and to comfort him, the scribe said this, before you pick him up, you got to check his pockets. Because if he has a rock in his pocket and you pick him up on the Sabbath, you have broken the Sabbath. See, that's how narrow they had defined what they could or could not do on the Sabbath. So here's the interesting part. They always believed that the Sabbath day ended when the first three stars appeared in the night sky that signals the start of the next day. Now, their days spanned six o'clock in the evening until six o'clock in the evening, not midnight until midnight like we do. Their new day started at six o'clock. And they started when three stars came to the night sky. So all of a sudden, three stars come out. The Sabbath is over. Pouring into this courtyard were, verse 40, all those who had any sick with various diseases. And demons also came out of many. You know, you've got to go all the way back to 750 B.C., before you will find anywhere in the Bible that gives in a single instance 
of miraculous healing. You've got to go all the way back to 750 B.C. Nothing has happened from 750 B.C. till A.D., maybe 30, until Jesus. 780 years before they've seen, since they've seen a miraculous healing. But now blind eyes could see again. Now paralyzed limbs can move again. Now victims of demons were freed. Never had a day like this ever happened in human history. Jesus is proving he has authority over demons. He has authority over disease. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the savior of the world. The whole evening, look what it says. All of them who had any sick were bringing them. All of them who were demon-possessed were being brought. My guess is not everybody was able to be helped that evening. There was too many. So the next day, well, Jesus goes to sleep that night. He lays down to sleep. Early the next morning, look at verse 42, he departed and went into a desolate place. Now, Mark has a a really interesting twist on this. Mark wrote that it was very early in the morning while it was still dark. Now, that, that word in the Greek refers to the final watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus got up, he left Peter's home, he left the metropolis, I'm exaggerating, the city of Capernaum, and he finds somewhere where there there aren't any people, a desolate place. He walks out of town. Why? He needs, he wants, he he desires to pray to his father. Now that's, by the way, a very interesting thing because for me as well, we can all struggle with this. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us have kind of a weak prayer life? We just don't really pray that much. How many of us, knowing that, determine to sacrifice sleep and get up early and trust the Lord to give us the strength throughout the day, but to spend time with our Heavenly Father? Well, if you haven't done that, if you don't do that regularly, you pray for me, I'll pray for you. Let's get up like Jesus. And let's spend time with our Heavenly Father. He goes out of town, and when daybreak came, verse 42 happens. The people saw him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Do you hear what Luke's saying? The people found him. They're looking all over the place. There are still people that need to get healed. There's still people filled with a demon. There's still people that want something from Jesus and they would have kept him from leaving him. They would have forced him to stay. They were trying to talk him into staying permanently. Guess what? He's your lucky rabbit's foot. If he's in town, nothing bad's gonna happen to anybody. See, in Nazareth, they drove him away to try to kill him because he preached the gospel. Here, they didn't want to let him go because he did miracles. You see, miracles will never enrich your faith. I had, even today, somebody say, 
Why can't God just talk to me face to face? If he would, all my doubts would go away. I can assure you that is not true because here they talk to him face to face. And even in Capernaum, where he did more miracles, I think, than anywhere else in the world, they would not believe, and he called down judgment on them. It's not miracles. It's not talking face-to-face with God that will enrich your faith. It is the Spirit of God enabling you to believe, and you responding to that with obedience. That's how your faith grows. And Jesus gives them a reason why he cannot stay in Capernaum, in Capernaum, and the insight that he gives is going to finish out our remaining few minutes. He says in verse 43, can we all look at this? This is the center part of this message. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So why did Jesus come? Our tour guide makes it so clear. You're on the bus. He's up front with a little microphone in his face. And you holler up to the front, Luke, why did Jesus come? And Luke's going to tell you and he's going to tell everybody in that bus, he came to preach the gospel. He came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That was his main purpose. That's his mission. And the mission gripped his life. Look how he says it. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's emphatic. It's necessary. It is critical that I preach the good news. But why? Why is it so important that he preaches the good news? By the way, why is it so important that whatever church you go to, they preach the good news? You see, the phrase good news is the exact same word in the Bible for the word gospel. So just translate that in your mind. Good news is the word gospel, same Greek word. And the the book of Romans helps us understand why Jesus must preach the gospel because it is the power of God, the gospel is, for salvation to everyone who believes. In other words, listen, even if you're not really sure if this is right, Romans 10 will wipe every doubt out of your mind. No one can believe savingly in Jesus Christ if they do not hear the good news explained. The gospel must be explained. Now, Christian friends, that's our job. It's not just my job. Your great hope for your non-believing friends is not somehow to bring them to church and and so that they can listen to us preach the gospel. Bring them to church. But the great hope of your non-believing friends, listen, it's that you would preach the gospel. It's that you would share the gospel. You would explain the gospel. Now think for just a moment. Think of your job. Think of where you are. Do you realize that God gave you that job? He didn't have to. He is sovereign. He gave you that job because that's your mission field. And when he's done with you in that mission field, he's going to bring you to a different place to work. But it won't be most 
importantly for you to be able to gain a salary. It won't be most importantly for you to gain purpose and meaning and self-esteem. No, 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 no. It's that you get a new mission field. You get a new group of people to be able to explain the gospel, the good news, for nobody can come to saving faith without the gospel explained. Now, tomorrow or Monday, when you go back to work, you really need to have the mindset you are now entering your mission field. Write it down, put it on the dashboard of your car. If you've got an office, put it on your desk. This is my mission field. This is my responsibility. Nobody else has that responsibility. You've been given that responsibility. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's just Paul's way of saying no one's going to believe without the gospel explained to them. Do you know, do you really understand, friends, that God so greatly desires for people to be saved? You know, the old Calvinists had a, um, these were not really actually true Calvinists. These were Calvinists on steroids. Um, my theology would align fairly closely to Reformed theology, but the old really, I, like, I'm really serious about Reformed theology, believed in double predestination, meaning in some of their explanation that God get, takes great, great delight in saving some and great, great pleasure in damning others. That is not God. Yes, he takes great delight in saving some. There's no pleasure in God for anybody to go to hell. He's a God of love. He loves your unbelieving friends. And perhaps you're wondering what people need to be saved from. I mean, maybe you, you're not really sure of the answer to that. Well, the answer is very, very simply the word sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, Romans 3 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In other words, there's nobody not in need of saving. Everybody needs to be saved. But there we go, that pastor mentions the sin word. You knew it was gonna happen. So let me not make it more palatable, let me make it more clear. Sin is a word that describes looking through the scope of a gun, firing, and missing the target. That's literally what sin is. It is missing the mark. You have fired, you looked through the scope, you thought you were dead on, you missed the target. That's what sin is. It's doing what God finds morally offensive or not doing what he finds pleasing. So now really the litmus test determining what is sin and what is not sin is not your society. It's not your culture. It's not your upbringing. It's not your background. It's not your considerable intellect. It is God. He decides what is sin and what is not. But you see, there is a sin below the sin, which is deeper than just behavior. And this is really where you want to go when you explain the gospel to your friends because all of your friends, all of my friends, will be able to justify themselves. Not really, but they'll try. And they'll be able to say, well, I haven't done this. 
I'm not as bad as that person. And all the while they're rationalizing and they're justifying themselves rather than God. So you want to get them to the sin below the sin. And the sin below the sin is in the heart. We miss the target because we have desires that want to please ourselves more than God. That's the root of every sin. Every sin is I want something more than I want God. In fact, I want something for me more than I want God. Friends, that's at the root of it all. We have hearts that want to defy him, hearts that want to wear the crown and sit on the throne. Now, let me give you an example of how this works. Think of a child that talks back to his parent. The parent is correcting that child, and the child is just so angry, talking back to the parent. And that child, that child is in trouble. That child gets grounded. The next day, the child, still angry, talks back to a school teacher. And now he gets sent to the principal's office, and he's still furious. He's sitting in the principal's office, and now he talks back to the principal. And now he's suspended from school. Now, here's how you understand the sin below the sin. You see, the punishment doesn't just fit the crime but who the crime was against. You see, if you get really angry and you defy Tim Ackley, there's really not gonna be a lot of repercussions for you, right? I mean, I'm not gonna enjoy it, but there's nothing life-changing that's gonna happen with you. But when you defy the Creator, the Lord of all lords, the one who made you, the one who is sovereign over you, the Lord of your life, the King of all kings, that's a whole different category. See, the punishment doesn't just fit the crime, it fits who the crime was against. And when we sin, we are ultimately sinning against God. We're defying the creator of the universe. And the punishment isn't just grounded, it, being grounded, it's not just being sent to the principal's office or suspension. Listen, this is the worst news. This is the bad news. The punishment is death. Now, you and I don't understand that because we live in America and we have rights and we have lawyers and we have attorneys and we have a, we have a decent justice system. Oh, you would understand this if you lived back in biblical days when there was a king. Because if you defied a king and you spoke back to a king, you were killed. So when, when I'm explaining this, it's really difficult, but it's necessary. Try not to go through our Americanized mind and our Americanized filter, go through most of human history. When a king is on the throne, you have no choice but to obey him. So death is the only right punishment that fits the crime that we commit against God. And God would not be consistent. He would not be right. He would not be just if he just winked at you and gave you a pass. Each and every sin must be punished by death for it is an unimaginable offense to defy God. Now, what I've done to you just now is how I explain the good news of the gospel to an unbeliever. I share the bad news 
before I share the good news because the good news doesn't look that good until you see how bad the bad news really is. If you try to share the good news without the bad news, you've got a grandfatherly God and you just sort of slip into salvation based on your own merit. No, there is no merit that works with your God. We must be courageous and explain the bad news, but we cannot leave there. We must move on to the good news. Sin kills, but God loves, and he doesn't want us to die, so he sent his son to rescue us. And there was only one way for Jesus, the son of God, to save us, and yet God could still be just. The only way is for God to invest all of his holy wrath, all of his anger, all of the justice for our sins onto the innocent one, Jesus. And this was the plan of God before he created the universe. Jesus would be punished for our sins. And no, this is not fatherly abuse, which some theologians have claimed. This is a God and his son who love us so much, the father said, this is the plan. The son says, it's pleasing to me. Let's do this to save the ones we love. See, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God for I was sent for this purpose. There is no other way to be saved. This is my mission, to tell you about this gospel so that by believing in me, you can be saved. And Christian, for anyone who believes God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You are made a citizen of God's kingdom and Jesus is your king and he blesses you forever. God dies in our place so that we could live if we would just believe in him. Well, you might want to wonder, what does it mean to believe in him? It's really simple, but there's three parts to it. Well, and it makes sense. Number one, you've got to have some understanding of the gospel message. I mean, you can't believe in something you don't understand. You may not understand all of it, and surely you won't when you get saved, but you have to have some understanding. And that understanding has to leave you persuaded. This is true. If you believe in something you don't think is true, that can't save you, and that won't save anybody. So you've got to have an understanding of the gospel. You've got to be persuaded by it, and you've got to commit and trust to the Lord and King of the universe. You've got to come to Jesus and say, I'm going to deny myself daily, and I'm going to pick up my cross and follow you. Why? Because I'm going to make this a work? No. It's because God has already enabled you. He's already worked in you. He's already opened your eyes to believe. You're responding, you're responding to what the work of God is. Now here's what's happened. We're on a bus. Luke's our tour guide. 
We're not really here on that bus to see the sights of Capernaum. It might have been interesting to know that the synagogue was right on the shore of the lake and that Peter's house, it's believed, is pretty close to it and that it's a, an insula complex, it was called. You know, lots of apartments around a courtyard. Really interesting, I think, to know that the Sabbath day was over when three stars appeared. And here, this is why now the town is pouring out and they're carrying their sick and the six uh, sick people's mattresses. Okay, that's all interesting. And it brings kind of colorization to the text, right? That's not what Luke wants to show us. Those are just sights along the way. Where he really wants us to go is to Jesus. Do you see him? Do you really see him? Is your heart soaring right now? Or is there some conviction in you? Are you a little scared? Because maybe you're realizing, okay, I, I, I don't believe like that. That's not in me. I believe there's a God, but I don't believe like that. And I don't see Jesus in this way. Well, if that's you, my friend, then that's the Spirit of God. He's doing a work in you, enabling you to believe. Will you respond? Will you respond in faith? It's the only way to be saved. Do you see your desperate condition? Do you see you've defied your Creator? And that leaves you in a boatload of trouble for eternity. Yet God is over here going, but wait a minute, I love you. I love you. I made a way for you to be saved. All you need to do is believe, and I'll even give you the faith to believe. You've got to just respond to it. You've got to have an understanding and be persuaded and commit and trust to follow me. And if you do that, I'm going to save you. And I'm going to do it through my son's death because he took your punishment. That's what we're about to celebrate. And actually, as the people that are going to serve this want to come up right now, I'm going to meet you down at the table. This is what we're going to do. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper as a way to remember again and worship again this incredible Jesus who taught Paul something very, very interesting. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what we're about to do, now listen really carefully, this is for believers only. If you're not yet a Christian, I'm gonna ask you just pass that. It's, it's not to your shame. No, it's for your protection because some, the Bible says, take this in an unworthy manner and it leads to death. This is a serious, serious thing that we're about to do, yet it's a celebration. So if you're not a believer, let that tray pass you, but let this motivate you. Why would you not be a believer? Why would you not believe in the God who sent his son to die in your place so that you could have life? You see, the Lord's Supper focuses on two things. And just before I'm going to have these men pass this out, let me explain to you what they are. You ready? They focus on the death of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Both the death of Jesus and the return of Jesus ought to be right now echoing in your heart as you prepare to take this. And when Jesus returns, he will fully bring in his kingdom. He will finally and fully silence all of his enemies. 
But we're not there yet. The kingdom is coming in. It was inaugurated through the person of Christ. And where the kingdom of God is, his rule and his presence is. And it's most clearly seen in his church. And as we're about to eat this bread and drink this juice, we are declaring to our own soul and everybody in this room, Jesus died for me. He saved my life. I believe in him. And you know with certainty he's coming again. Maranatha means, oh Lord, come. So let this strengthen your faith in Jesus. Let it ruin your pride. Let it bring you joy for the greatest display of God's love the universe has ever seen is the Son of God on that terrible cross. The death of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Now, while they pass this out, I'm gonna help guide you through this. So I'm gonna ask you to actually listen as I do that. Here's what, the, here's what Jesus said. This is my body. You're gonna, we're gonna be taking the bread first, okay, and then the juice. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, everybody look at me if you could. That word remembrance is incredibly powerful. It means to relive something as if you were there. It means to recall the details of it. There you go, you wanna pass this out? There you go. If anybody needs a gluten-free one, they're right here. This is what the word remembrance need, means. Okay, to relive, to recall as if you were there. So here we go, you ready? I want everybody to look at me if you can. You don't need to look at your Bibles yet. Look at me. I want you to pray. I want you to think. I want you to reflect. And I want you to remember Jesus. Listen, not just facts about him. Not just information. But in your mind right now, you can do this. I can do this. I want you to see him as if you were there stumbling under the weight of that cross. On his way to being crucified. Having just been scourged. There is blood coming out of his body. If you were there, you would have seen some of the muscles on his back and his ribs opened and glaring because it rips your skin apart, scourging does. And I want you to see right now, and I want you to, before the men come back, I want you to pretend, uh, hold on just a sec, I want you to pretend you're at the base of the cross and he's on that cross. Forget the thieves for a moment. You can hear them gasping, they're crying, one of them's angry, making all kinds of threats and hostile comments. Forget them, tune them out. I just want you to be at the base of the cross and I want you to look up. He's about six feet off the ground, his feet, likely. And if you're quiet enough, you're gonna hear drops of his blood splatter on the ground, you're gonna hear it. And if you listen closely enough, you're gonna to listen to his gasps because you can't breathe deep on the cross. It ties your, it pulls your intercoastal muscles too tight. No, all you could do is take little breaths. 
So he's gasping, he's struggling to breathe. And if you look at his face for a moment, you're not gonna see his smile, you're gonna see agony. He is bearing the punishment of every one of our sins. And because of it, his father has forsaken him. He's never in eternity experienced his father forsaking him. Never. This is anguish. And yet, if you're perceptive enough, you will not find an ounce of regret on his face. You will not see one iota of blame to you. And if you were to be so blessed, and it would be so painful, that his eyes for a moment caught yours down on the ground below him, you would see nothing but love. Nothing but love. That's your savior. That's the good news. It's the gospel. The men are gonna come back, and as they come back, we're gonna take this, and you're gonna separate your cups, and you're gonna grab the bottom one. This is the symbol of his body. This is what he said, take this, eat, do this in remembrance of me. He died in our place. That's the gospel he came to proclaim. Do you believe it? Let's eat. We're not done. There's a reason there's two parts to this. His body was broken, literally nailed to the cross in our place. But there's something about that blood that he had to shed, and that means he had to shed it to death. He bled out. There was likely almost no blood left. What blood was left in his arteries was so thick, so oxygenated, it was hardly even bringing anything to the lungs. His outer extremities, it's amazing that he could still think. And yet he did think. He spoke seven times on that cross and one of them was a cry that pierced the eerie silence. It was almost three o'clock, probably 20 minutes till three. He's gonna die at three o'clock. He yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never ever in human history has a voice carried that much anguish. And as you hear me say that, your heart likely is overflowing with sorrow because he's on that cross because of us. We're the ones that put him on there. Oh, but you say, I wasn't there. I didn't nail him up there. I didn't yell crucify. You are responsible and I am as well because we sinned. We defied him. We had the sin below the sin. And the only way we could live is if he died in our place. And almost immediately now, after he says that, you notice that his gasping is slowing down and even seconds between breaths and you wonder horribly, has he died? Is he gone? You don't have to wonder for long because all of a sudden he says his sixth statement, it is finished. 
And minutes later, he prayed so gently. It would be like your exhausted little toddler laying his head down on the pillow in sleep within seconds. The Greek is like a soft head to the pillow. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now you're there. You hear this, you're remembering it, you're recalling it, you're bringing it back to mind. We salute our God, we salute Jesus when we drink, and we say because of him, we can live. Because of him, we could have life forever. So you drink with joy, with gratitude. You don't drink with regret. He did it willingly. You drink with confidence that there is no more condemnation for you. Nothing, even the horrible, and think about it, your most horrible sins that you have committed that you've never even told people. They're not being held to you anymore. Even those sins he died for. You are white as snow. Do you believe that? If you do, it won't have power over you anymore. You can walk out of here free. That's the good news. Let's drink. Now, Christians... Would you listen to me? I'm going to be about 30 seconds. This is what we are to be witnesses of. This is what we are to tell people. Don't forget the bad news because it's what makes the good news so good. And don't leave them at the bad news like some sadist spiritually. Get them to the good news where they can have freedom in life and show them Jesus, the greatest display of God's love on that cross. Amen.